Willie, Mickey, the Duke, maybe Mike Trout? We'll ask the legend, Lenny Melnick, about all that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 12th. It's show number 18 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Lenny Melnick, the legend from LennyMelnickFantasySports.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio, about Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, the Detroit bullpen, free swinging, dump trading, thumbs up, thumbs down, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at two closers going to the DL, Ryan Zimmerman's blazing start, and more... And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Detroit's bullpen, Jorge Soler, Jarrell Cotton, and a boatload of starting pitcher injuries in Seattle. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Philadelphia first base prospect Rise Hoskins. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Texas first baseman Ronald Guzman and Pittsburgh starter Tyler Epler. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at left-handers Chris Sale and Matt Moore, among others. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about Noah Syndergaard, Part 2. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Willie, Mickey, the Duke, we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Seems for the last while, Nick, our usual start is to talk about injured starting pitchers, so we'll open a little differently a couple of injured relief pitchers. In New York, Mets closer Juris Familia is out indefinitely with what the team is calling an arterial clot in his right shoulder. Obviously, Addison Reed looks likely to be the guy who steps up. Phil Hertz is covering this for playing time today. What is the situation of the beleaguered Mets for their bullpen? Well, you know, this is one, with, with an arterial clot, this is one thing that is very hard for to determine at this point. He may need surgery. Uh, we have no idea when he'll be back. But uh, thankfully, uh, Addison Reed is doing an outstanding job at this point. Uh, no walks and 22 strikeouts so far. I mean, that's an incredible, uh, uh, you, you can't figure a command ratio from that because uh, there aren't any walks to divide into the 22. So, you know, but, but this, uh, Reed is pitching very well, a 2.61 XERA. Uh, should do just fine as the closer, was the closer in Arizona in 2016 and has been doing an outstanding job. So I don't think there's any problem here. Uh, it's just that uh, the familiar, Juris Familia owners who were counting on him for saves maybe shouldn't count on very much from here on out, at least until we've got some more information. Some people might recall that he struggled a bit in Arizona as the closer, one of the reasons I think that they traded him, but he has been excellent so far this year, as you said. He's also, uh, I think it's interesting that he's getting ahead of hitters at a really redonkulous 78% clip. And of course, Nick, they say the best pitch in any pitcher's arsenal is strike one, and he's getting way more swings and misses, 15% swinging strike rate, which is a career high. Both of those are career highs, in fact. Nick, is there a concern that uh, that Addison Reed is going to regress back to 
What is uh, more normal career rates of 65% first pitch strike and 12% swinging strike rate, which would mean some resets as far as his, uh, his outcomes are concerned? There always has to be that concern, but we're talking about a guy who is 28 years old and should still be in, in some kind of growth mode. So if he were 35, I would say that the regression is more likely. At 28, maybe we're simply reaching a new level of performance, uh, and, and that it could be real. So uh, I wouldn't say that regression is necessarily in the cards here. Another closer biting the dust in San Francisco, Nick, right-hander Mark Melanson, placed on the 10-day DL. He's got what they call a mild pronator strain near his right elbow. And any time you hear pronator strain and right elbow in the same sentence, you immediately start worrying, of course, about the possibility of a Tommy John-type situation or an extended stay on the DL at best. Uh, Rob Carroll covered this for playing time today. What's the deal with Mark Melanson, and what's the deal with the San Francisco bullpen as a result? Well, you know, at this point... Uh, at this point, as you said, they're hoping it's a very short-term situation, but uh, he'd been feeling some discomfort in that elbow since spring training, uh, and this is the first time in his career he's been in the DL, so this is not a guy who gets gets hurt easily. Um, but uh, I, I think there's got to be some concern here. There, um, The initial reports say he'll be back at the end of the 10 days, and that might make you kind of leery to go out and pick up someone in, in the interim, but I'm not sure. Um Derek Law is got the first save chance. Derek Law has pitched very, very well. Uh, and certainly he is the, the one that I think I would be picking up if I were trying to back up uh, Melanson at this point. Uh, Derek Law at this point has a only an 82 BPV. So an 8.4 DOM, 2.5 command. So there are some poss- possible struggles uh, down the road for Derek Law uh, because he's not showing that kind of elite closer numbers that we would be looking at. But he's the guy I would pick up on the sh- in the short term, certainly. Hunter Strickland is also a possibility. Uh, so they've got a couple of guys in that bullpen who could either share the closer role or who could uh, do the job if Melanson is out. A couple of left-handers too, Stephen Okert and Josh Osich, I think, might be uh, in there if they decide to go with some kind of mix and match based on uh, whether they're facing left-handed or right-handed hitters in the ninth. But to w- getting back to Derek Law, w- when I look at this line, 82 base performance value you mentioned, and it's made up of some pretty pedestrian numbers, and I'm particularly noticing the uh, 3.4 walk rate. Uh, 3.4 walks per nine is pretty uh, pretty borderline for a closer-type set of skills. And uh, going back to what I was talking about earlier, when you look at first pitch strike and a swinging strike this is not a really solid situation for Derek Law 55% on the first pitch strike which is uh, below league average and 10% swinging strike rate I think there's going to be a lot of guys putting balls into play against Derek Law and maybe that's part of the explanation of his 415 expected ERA yeah that may be I mean I think you're right this is not a uh, this is not a shutdown type closer uh, for, for with Derek Law and so it's a situation where uh, we may find Hunter Strickland getting more work, or we may find the Giants, if this becomes a long-term situation, uh, turning to uh, to the trade route to come up with one of those closers that are being out there dangled by, by teams who figure they're not going to contend. On the other hand, Nick, uh, a lot of people will look at the ERA is 338, which I guess is acceptable. It's not really the kind of thing you want from a closer, but he's got a 163 whip, and that's got to put a, a bit of the fear into into people before they consider putting a fab bid on Derek Law. And I would just like to point out, I don't think Derek Law is a shutdown closer either, but he's got a 39% hit rate right now, a 390 BABIP, and, and that's really high. And if that comes down at all, then you got to figure he's going to see a nice reduction in his whip, although he does have that walk problem. 
yeah, the walk problem is going to be a, a considerable issue, I think, for him. Uh, you know, it, it's something that we don't have a, a real handle on. He did not have that much of a problem a year ago with walks, so I don't know. We don't know why it's happening last year. Uh, 2016, 1.5 control, 3.4 this year. So what the maybe that's an aberration, but we don't have enough of a track record on Derek Law to know for sure. And it's a pretty small sample size for this year. You mentioned last year, 61 games, he threw 55 innings. Also not a very big sample, but in that larger sample, he was, as you say, quite a bit uh, better with the control ratio. So uh, it looks like Derek Law for now, as you said, uh, but don't write off uh, Melanson just yet, but I think we should. We are right to be worried. Uh, over in L.A., we had some really bad news. Last year's uh, good story out of Los Angeles was the uh, – Return to baseball of Andrew Tolls. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the story, he was a top prospect in Tampa. They've cut him loose because he had attitude and uh, and uh, those kind of problems. And then uh, they the Dodgers found him. I believe he was bagging groceries somewhere, and they and they said, "Why don't you come out and give it a try?" And he had a really terrific end of the season last year. Now he's out for the year with a torn ACL in one of his knees. Uh, this is really bad news for him. Really bad news for his owners, but probably pretty good news for at least uh, one guy, Cody Bellinger. Yeah, I think it was really good news for Cody Bellinger. I mean, we, it, it, when, when Cody Bellinger came up, we kept getting uh, signals that he was going to be sent down as soon as guys came off the DL. Uh, and the way Cody Bellinger had been hitting, that probably was not going to happen anyway. But at this point, clearly Cody Bellinger is needed in left field uh, to take over So with, with tolls out. And in fact, he started the last two games in left field uh, the, the talk is that they're going to try to fast-track uh, uh, Gonzalez and get him back into the lineup at first base so that Tolls can take over in the out. I mean, so that, uh, that Bellinger can take over that outfield spot. So uh, I, I think this is good news for Bellinger. Probably will not be going back down. Certainly should not have been going back down anyway, given the way he was hitting. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez on the DL, as you mentioned, uh, that was a little more than a week ago, so he's got two or three days left. In the meantime, it looks like if they want Bellinger to get out there, it uh, looks like Chase Utley gets moved over to first base, and that sounds like it might be promising, but really, given Utley's performance so far this year, not so much. No, not so much at all. I mean, Utley is certainly not, uh, has not been uh, performing the way that uh, that that was vintage uh, Chase Utley, and uh, I'm not sure, at, even at Vinny Chase Utley, that he gave you the kind of performance you want out of a first baseman or a corner infielder. So, uh, um, yeah, we, they need Adrian Gonzalez back real fast, I think, if they're going to keep uh, keep the offense going. And what about Andre Eth here? Uh, he's kind of been on and off, mostly because of health. Uh, what do we think of Andre Ethier's prognosis for getting some added playing time and being a contributor? Well, certainly there's a, there is a, a possibility at this point for for additional playing time for Andre Ethier. And, and Ethier, you know, Ethier is a pretty good ball player uh, with a pretty good track record, but uh, he has a herniated disc in his back. So uh, I don't think that right now, when, when we would expect him back in the lineup, I'm not sure. Uh, the the um, prognosis, I think, is that he'll be out until probably June. Uh, and when he comes back, I don't know how much power to expect from him at this point. We're talking about a guy who's who's 35 year old, old and has a bad back. So, uh, given his, he has some, certainly has some good skills, but whether his back will allow him to put those into play, uh, is a totally different story. And of course the Dodgers have a pretty highly regarded prospect down in AAA Oklahoma City, a young man named Alex Verdugo, but so far he hasn't exactly shone at the AAA level. No, at this point he hasn't been shining and, and 
So, uh, you know, I think there's a, a not, not much likelihood that's going to happen, at least in terms of the kind of, uh, of everyday role that the Dodgers need at this point. You know, Nick, one of the guys I've always really liked as a, as a fantasy asset is uh, Martin Prado, who's been a versatile, useful guy, good batting average guy, good on-base percentage guy. And uh, this year, he's been a good injury guy. He's been placed on the 10-day DL. He's got a strained right hamstring. Seems like there's a lot of right hamstring, left hamstring issues this year as well, don't you think? Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. They recalled a shortstop named J.T. Riddle. Seems like bench reinforcements. So what happens to the playing time in my Miami with Prado on the on the DL. What's, what's likely to happen is Derek Dietrich is going to get continued playing time. Derek Dietrich had not started out all that well at this point. A 239 batting average, a 223 expected batting average, no home runs and 67 at bats. So uh, Derek Dietrich is not looking like the kind of player that we would expect him to be this season. Uh, needs to take take advantage, I think, of this opportunity and um, has to hit better, especially against left-handers, if he's going to to do well. Uh, at this point. Yeah, there was a time when Derek Dietrich was a kind of guy that had looked like he had some power upside. He had a really nice 111 uh, hard contact index a couple of years ago in 2015, 11% above, above league average. He uh, he managed to smack 10 home runs in just 250 at-bats, but uh, in 2016, those rates all sank, and this year, as you said, it's way off, and his hard contact index is down to 85, which is 15% below league average. So uh, is there any uh, other al- uh, alternatives besides Derek Dietrich if he doesn't get it turned around you know I'm not sure they really are in Miami at this point I mean they're kind of in a bind they've got to it's a a situation where they may have to go looking somewhere else I believe as well uh, if Prado is going to be out long term I mentioned uh, J.T. Riddle, the shortstop who they called up. He was 2-for-14 with the Marlins earlier this year, and he hit a home run, so that's something, I guess, but probably not a lot of fantasy help there. Uh, finally, Nick, uh, probably the story of the year, at least on offense in the National League, if we discount injuries, of course, must be the explosion of Washington first baseman Ryan Zimmerman. Boy, is he uh, off to a hot start. Stephen Nickrand covered Ryan Zimmerman, among others, in his Batter's Buyer's Guide column on April's Base Performance Value Leaders among uh, batters and the question on everyone's mind of course can Ryan Zimmerman keep up this torrid pace or maybe the question should be Nick how much is he going to tail off what does Stephen think about this you know it really has been a it's been a a wonderful story for Ryan Zimmerman this in in the month of April a 1.345 OPS the highest of any hitter in Major League Baseball during the month of April so uh, you're always glad to see that from a guy like Ryan Zimmerman but I'm not sure that uh, Stevens not sure that this is an elite bat again. I'm not sure either. Um, his home runs in April were were fueled by a 39% home run per fly rate. Uh, that's certainly not going to continue. Uh, and batting pitch recognition, batting eye was 0.3, uh, 6% walk rate, 77% contact rate. Um, so those things all suggest some regression coming. And the other thing to remember is this is a guy who's only had one 400 at bat season since 2014. So there's huge injury risk with Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, we're glad he had a good month of April, but I would bet against him sustaining that first in terms of performance, but not even sure he's going to stay in the lineup given his injury history. 
Yeah, he's got 13 home runs so far. He has 15 all of last year in 427 at-bats, as you mentioned. I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of problems here with sustainability. Uh, the injury risk, of course, is ever-present. But when I look down the list of his OPS numbers, from 2012, he was up around 824, which is good, not great. Uh, his highest ever, I think, is around 900 in full-time play, which is very good, but still not uh, 1250 or whatever he's at these days. Uh, and then from that 824 in 2012, it's been steadily downhill, Nick. 809, 790, 773, and 642 last year, which means his OPS this year is pretty much double last year. And I, I, I think uh, I wish Ryan Zimmerman all the best. I wish his owners all the best. But gosh, uh, uh, one season doubling in OPS does not sound like it's going to be the kind of thing that uh, pennants are made out of. No, I think you're right. I mean, you 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 said you said a lot when you said that steady downward spiral, and that's what we've seen since 2012. The OPS had been dropping in increments every single year, down to last season's low of 6.42, and so I don't think we have a resurgence or uh, here that's that's likely to last. Uh, and as we said, the injury history is uh, uh, is considerable here. And so maybe he'll wind up the season with a 1,200 OPS, but that will only happen if he's out for most of the rest of the season. That's right. He's going to lock in his gains by going on the DL for the rest of the year. Uh, one other thing about Ryan Zimmerman, I think, is is a cautionary note, like we need more of those. His walk rate, which was 10% uh, back in 2013, which is pretty good for a power hitter, real important that power hitters are, are selective at the plate. It's down around 6% this year. And you mentioned also this uh, very unsustainable home run per fly ball rate. In fact, this is down around, uh, uh, his fly ball percentage itself is down around 38% or so, which is very uncharacteristic of a of a power hitter. And if he doesn't start lofting the ball more, there's there's just no way Nick he can keep hitting home runs at this pace. No, there, there's not. I mean, you're you're not going to have that percentage of fly balls leaving the leaving the yard. And as you said, thirty eight percent fly ball rate is not going to generate forty home runs by the end of the season. It certainly isn't, Nick. Uh, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Patrick Davitt, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I actually had a night the other night in my Tout Wars team, which has the, the only team in the entire league with an on-base percentage under 300. And last night, the boys finally uh, unlimbered the lumber, as the saying might go, and uh, had a 690 on-base percentage for the night, but it barely budged the needle on uh, what has been a disaster for me in that regard so far this year. But we're not here to talk about me. Let's talk about the Detroit Tigers and especially their bullpen situation. I'm going to bring this up with uh, Lenny Melnick in our feature interview segment a little later. So we'll just get uh, the uh, overview from you, if you don't mind, uh, Obviously, uh, K-Rod, Frankie Rodriguez, has been a problem-slash-disaster for a while now. Looks like he's going to be replaced by Justin Wilson. Tom Kephart covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the story, Jock? Well, um, <laughs> K-Rod, when, you, when your velocity starts slipping, um, you start nibbling and your walk rate goes up, and that's kind of what's happening to him. Uh, his velocity is, is down a, a tick this year when most velocities are up because of those pitching measurement changes. Um, his strikeouts are still up. Uh, the changeup's working. Control is uh, his, he's, he's uh, uh, 
walking more hitters though and his home runs he just doesn't get any ground balls anymore he's just been ripped by the home runs um era has been rising now for two years uh era near six i think right now yeah it is it's uh actually no it's near eight right now so he's lost his job i don't think he's going to get it back he's just everything's heading the wrong way wilson needed a cortisone shot last summer justin wilson the likely replacement but uh aside from the worries that we always have about pitchers with bulky elbows he's also a left-hander which is somewhat problematic in matchups sense uh, so what are we uh, looking at here do you think as far as justin wilson's ability to hold the job now that he has it Justin Wilson is not only one of the few bright spots right now in the in the Tigers pen. Uh, he's actually been pretty good, you know, over the over the years. He's struck out for the last two years now. His velocity, his 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 strikeout rate's been rising now for for three years straight. He struck out ten a game last year. He's striking out fourteen batters per nine innings this year. He doesn't have any problem controlling right-handers or handling them. Uh, he's he's going to hold on to the job. The only thing I see in his in his uh, metrics that I don't like, uh, he's giving up uh, a few more fly balls this year. It hasn't hurt him from a home run standpoint, but uh, normally he's a pretty good ground ball pitcher. I, I like Justin Wilson a lot. And if you're going to be uh, giving up a few more fly balls, uh, certainly Detroit Comerica Park is the place to be doing it, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't think they're going to hurt him. So um, uh, the biggest problem he's going to have is uh, somebody to get the ball to him. Yeah, there is that. And uh, again, I'll talk with Lenny about this. But uh, one of the things I wondered about was he seemed very comfortable in that eighth inning, somewhat multi-inning role, uh, facing batters and, and being a setup guy was very successful. And sometimes guys... We just think, hey, you're the setup guy, now you're the closer, no difference. But for some guys, it is a difference. Yeah, there is. Uh, it it kind of remains to be seen to, to see how he's going to do. I mean, he's he's got one save to date. Uh, not sure uh, how much trouble he's had since he's been in there, if he's had any. But uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, the metrics look good, though. Let's go over to Kansas City. Uh, outfielder Jorge Soler was something of a big name moving over to the Royals in the offseason and went straight to the DL pretty much. Uh, he'll, he started uh, this week, as a matter of fact. He missed all of April with an oblique strain. Uh, Matt Dodge covered this in playing time today. Jorge Soler looks like he can give Kansas City's offense a boost, and heaven knows they need it. Uh, they, bit, they've been really terrible, Jock. Yeah, they've really have been awful. Uh, the, the issues are pretty basic there. They're dead last in major league batting average and scoring, and they're among the bottom feeders in AL home runs. So if Soler could ever live up to his talent uh, and stay healthy, he, he's going to help. Now, Kansas City left him in AAA for an extended rehab before calling him up this week, and he performed pretty well. He posted a 938 OPS with three home runs in 39 at-bats at AAA. But now with Kansas City, he's just one for 18 in the early going. It's almost like you get to Kansas City and you start slumping. Uh, he's got three walks in those 18 at-bats, so at least he's showing some patience on the surface. Soler owners will just have to hope that he'll start producing, and of course Kansas City will too because they're awful right now. Everybody on the team is uh, really cold and slumping. Brandon Moss, for instance, is ice cold. Uh, I think he's uh, down around an 80% hit rate, so he should rebound a little bit. But by the time he does, could it be the, that with Soler there, there's no playing time available for Brandon Moss? Yeah, it's interesting. He just signed a two-year deal. It was only for $12 million. I'm, I'm sure they want to see if they can give him time. But uh, 
The situation in Kansas City is fascinating because of these performances to date and the contracts involved. Uh, you got left fielder Alex Gordon, who has been even worse than than Moss. He's he's uh, he's got a hundred. He, he's he's sitting on a 158 batting average with no home runs after 120 at bats. He doesn't look anything like his former self, and he's coming off of two down years. He's in the second year of a huge uh, second year of a four-year deal. It's that doesn't end until after 2019. So you've got those two that are that are have just been awful. If there's any glimmer here, it's been rookie uh, Jorge Bonifacio, who hasn't been a world beater, but at least he hasn't looked overmatched in his MLB debut. He's uh, he's hit 242 with two home runs and 55 at bats today. And when you look at K- where Kansas City is, it just doesn't seem like Gordon or Moss is going to be part of their next competitive team, which makes Yost's choices, playing time choices going forward, pretty interesting. Effectively, you have three position uh three positions left field and right field and dh for four pretty different guys well different in one sense but similar in the other sense that none of them can hit apparently except bonifacio a little bit uh I wonder about Alex Gordon in particular. He, he seems to be keeping his job because he has a, a reputation I think pretty much fully deserved as a really fine defensive player. He's a good base runner on the rare occasion when he gets on base. So he may be protected here a little bit by the contract and by the fact that he's a plus defensive player. But gosh, the the choices that Ned Yost has look pretty limited to me. And uh, I don't actually trust Ned Yost to make the right decision, even if it was fairly obvious. No, I agree. And honestly, I don't know what the right decision is. I'm looking at Alex Gordon's uh, 463 OPS, not on base percentage. That's OPS. That's what he has for the year. There's nothing in his metrics that look good right now. And, and yeah, he's got the contract and, and he's a local favorite, obviously, coming from Nebraska and being with Kansas City all his life. But uh, when you're in a rebuilding situation, how long can you go with that? Well, the flip side of that is, what do you do with them? Uh, Kansas City is not a team flush with money enough that they can just say, well, we'll just cut him or we'll put him in the minors or whatever the case might be. And they certainly can't trade him at this point. I mean, who's going to acquire a 460 OPS? Uh, presumably, you'd want to try to deal him off to some kind of contender. But before they can do that, Alex Gordon has to show some signs of life. Yeah, I think if there's any uh, silver lining on this is that they do have uh – four names for three positions and they can round robin people and sit people until somebody gets hot but the problem is nobody's real hot right now yeah boy you said a mouthful there some playing time issues also rising in tampa bay jock shortstop matt duffy uh, who started the year on the dl has been sent out on a rehab assignment so he should be back pretty soon but the problem is while he was gone tim beckham a former top draft pick uh, has taken over the Rays' shortstop job and done pretty well so uh, by the time he gets back what's this good what's the situation going to be matt duffy versus tim beckham who has been really quite surprisingly good yeah, he, he's been surprisingly good for a few reasons, and we're going to talk about that. But first off, I'd be surprised if Tampa Bay didn't give Duffy a full rehab extension, uh, although this this might depend on his performance in, uh, in the minors. He missed almost half of 2016 and all of 2017 to date, so I'd be surprised if there wasn't some rust here. Second off, the skill sets between these two players couldn't be more different, uh, Beckham's value to date is pretty much all power-driven. He's hit six homers, and he's had lots of hard contact when he makes contact. If you look at his plate skills, and I'm sure you are, uh, his contact rate is 64%, not at all good, and his walk rate is 4%, suggesting that his floor could cave in at 
any point in time. His selectivity has always been a problem. He has very good speed. He hasn't used it yet. He only has one stolen base. Now, when Duffy was healthy, he was a mid-80s contact, uh, good speed kind of guy. He hit 295 his rookie year. He doesn't have Beckham's power, but he has a much more stable floor than Beckham does. Um, Beckham's power is pretty intriguing, but if Duffy hasn't lost anything in the skills department while he's been out, I think he's more likely to hold down this job uh, than Beckham is. Huh, that's interesting because Tampa's, if they have one issue, it's that they don't generate a lot of power. And uh, I wonder if they might look at Tim Beckham and think, gosh, maybe maybe there's something here. Duffy has some playing time in the major leagues at other positions. Maybe there's a possibility there, although I'm certainly not going to take Longoria's spot at third. I think uh, Tampa might be finding themselves in a little bit of a pickle here because they can't really afford to stop playing Beckham and they can't really afford not to play Duffy again. Not enough positions for the guys you want to have on the field, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. And I don't think they're going to stop playing Beckham until he does, uh, until the floor does collapse under him, if it does. And who knows? Stranger things have happened. Uh, his, his power is legitimate. At least that's what the metrics are telling us. Their outfielders are not uh, killing it. Uh, Kevin Kiermaier has been playing dreadful defense. I was happened to be listening to a couple of Rays games over the last few days, and twice he overran balls, ground balls to center field that ended up turning into uh, basically inside-the-park home runs. Scored errors, of course, uh, but a single with a three-base error is not the way to uh, cement your reputation as a defensive whiz. Do you think there's any chance that Tampa might look at Beckham or Duffy or somebody to go out into the outfield and shore up things out there in order to keep everybody playing? Yeah, you know, Beckham's always been an athletic type, and uh, I, I think Tampa Bay has always looked at making him a, uh, a utility guy. So, no, it wouldn't surprise me to see them put him in the outfield. And, yeah, you're right. Other than uh, Steven Souza, their outfield has been pretty horrible to date. Okay, Jock, now this is going to sound to our listeners like a rerun, and I want to assure everybody who's out there mowing their lawns or riding the train to work or whatever you're doing while you listen to this podcast, this is not a rerun. We are offering current news out of Seattle. You noted way back in March that the pitching staff in Seattle entered 2017 with all kinds of injury risk, and we've talked about that here, including last week. And now suddenly, both James Paxton and Hisashi Iwakuma are on the DL, joining Felix Hernandez and Drew Smiley, who are on the DL as well. Seattle has five starters. Four of them are on the DL, and the one guy that's left is not the guy you'd want to have left. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Ivana, excuse me, Giovanni Gallardo has the lowest ERA of the current starters. We'll get into them in a minute. And it's 4.58, so... Who really cares? It's pretty ineffective stuff right now, and, and it's interesting. Last March, I looked at this thing, and I looked at those health grades, and my first reaction was, what were they thinking? I mean, they traded Nate Carnes. I realized he didn't have a great year last year, but I was thinking back in mid-March that there was a chance that that whole rotation could be on the DL at some point early, and now it's almost happened. Four out of the five starters are, are on the DL with, uh, with Gallardo uh, just holding holding down the fort right now and these aren't run-of-the-mill 10-day DL injuries Paxton was easily Seattle's best pitcher before he went down but he's got a forearm injury and and he's not expected back to the end of May at the earliest uh, but this is the kind of injury that uh, suggests that it could be a lot later than that and it could be a season it could be an issue all season long Iwakuma is already a shadow of his former self. His velocity is now down in Jared Weaver territory. His strikeouts are down. His walks are up. He's really fortunate that his ERA isn't higher than the 4.35 uh, um, 
ERA that it currently is. He has a strained shoulder. That's not going to help him. Felix and Smiley could be back by month end, but it might be too late for Seattle's uh, postseason hope. This this really looks terrible. And we mentioned Drew Smiley briefly. He's on the DL, the 60-day DL. He has a flexor strain in his elbow area. So we have uh, Paxton and Smiley who have elbow area problems. That's not promising. Smiley's going to be out probably until, what, July at the earliest, maybe the All-Star break or slightly after. Uh, So what are they going to do? We've talked about this budding disaster a couple of times, Jock, and uh, I know that you've pointed out Seattle has a couple of arms down in AA, Andrew Moore and Max Povsey, that are well, more intriguing than what they've got right now. Uh, is there any movement at all to get these young guys up to Seattle, or is this still second half or next year? Yeah, there has been on more. He actually uh, was promoted to AAA for his last start, and it wasn't great. Uh, doesn't mean he won't get rushed to Seattle at some point soon, because they're at a point where they simply need arms. Uh, um, behind Gallardo, who is now the ace of the staff, so to speak, you've got uh, Angel Miranda, whose ERA is 5.20. You've got uh, 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 DeJong, whose ERA is 7.85. Uh, Major League uh, retread uh, Christian Bergman is going to get a start, I think, uh, tonight in Toronto. It should be fun for the Blue Jays because his ERA is 5.71, over 151 career Major League innings. Saturday, you've got Dylan, Dylan Overton in Toronto. Boy, stream, stream your Blue Jays this week. Uh, he was destroyed last year in his MLB debut. It just doesn't look real good. Uh, Povsey is still at AA. He has a little more stuff than uh, Andrew Moore does. Not nearly as polished. I'm not sure what the plan there is. There's uh, one other name that, uh, that you didn't mention, and I'm curious what you think about Chris Heston, who uh, threw a no-hitter at least one time. Yeah, he did. Uh, they they brought up Heston briefly, uh, I think last week, and uh, he um he got torched in uh, in uh, long relief, I think behind Felix Hernandez when Felix went out with his injury, and they sent him back down to the minors. Uh, haven't looked to see what he's done since since then, but uh, boy, his uh, his his two performances in Seattle when he was there weren't promising. On to Oakland, more pitching trouble, but not an injury at least. I was surprised, Jock, that Oakland demoted Jarrell Cotton. I know he wasn't pitching well, but they sent him to AAA Nashville. This is a guy who was on a lot of short lists for the American League Rookie at the Year at the beginning of the season. I know he was pretty heavily drafted in a lot of leagues, but I have to give you credit where credit is due. You were not surprised that Jarrell Cotton was sent down. A few weeks ago, you said he was pitching so poorly that he looked uh, due for a AAA refresher, I believe is how you put it. Rod Truesdell covered this at BaseballHQ.com in playing time today. What's going on with Jarrell Cotton, and what the heck are the A's going to do about it? One of the things I noted a few weeks ago is that uh, all of Oakland's starting pitchers have minor league options remaining. So um, all perhaps all of them, or at least most of them, are going to see some minor league time. Uh, simply put, Cotton was walking too many hitters then, and uh, and. He, he, Everything was an adventure. Uh, he, he pitched well in flashes. And now in the last two starts, he's just given up a ton of home runs, five in his last two outings. Um, he uh, uh, given. I don't think he's going to be down there that long. I think he'll probably right the ship. He, he could be back before um, before the, the end of uh, the month, if not before, depending on how well he does in Nashville. Um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in Andrew Triggs' performance to date. Uh, the edges are beginning to fray around Jesse Hahn a little bit. Uh, I still like Cotton a lot, uh, but he's a rookie and he's going to have some growing pains. 
Of course, the A's are going to reactivate Sean Manaya this weekend, which is good news for his owners and for Oakland fans. I suspect he'll slip right back into the A's rotation. He had a pretty decent start at Nashville the other day. I think he gave up one run in four or five innings. Looked pretty sharp out there. Uh, mind you, he's had injury trouble too. He's had arm trouble in the past, so certainly Sean Manaya is not the uh, not the solution, perhaps, for Oakland's pitching woes. Uh, finally, Jock, I noticed in your Playing Time Tomorrow piece, you cover the American League West, of course, and you had some kind words about another Oakland player, not a pitcher, but the infielder, first baseman, Yonder Alonzo. And now this is a guy we have to keep in mind. The baseball forecaster this year called him this era's Doug Minkiewicz and said he wasn't even putting up the power skills of an average middle infielder. Uh, his power index was the second worst among first basemen last year, and all of a sudden he looks like the second coming of Frank Howard or something. What's going on with Yonder Alonso? Yeah, well, obviously when we were writing the forecaster, we didn't realize what Alonzo had planned. And, uh, you know, Saris read a, a very good piece in Fangraphs in March. I wish I'd paid more attention to, uh, he talked to, uh, to Yonder and, uh, Yonder was changing his swing path. He's one of those swing path, uh, change guys, uh, and, uh, he's always had good patience, uh, and he's actually always made hard contact while he was hitting a lot of ground balls during the years where he wasn't very productive. Um, He's made a huge reversal from his ground ball rate, his previous ground ball rate, to, to a near 50% ground ball rate now. His power metrics are spiking through the roof, and his patience has remained the same. I think he can keep up what he's doing now. He may not sustain the same pace. He's got 11 home runs and uh, probably on a pace for 50. He's probably going to back off. Would not surprise me at all to see Yonder Alonso hit 30, 35 home runs this year. He has essentially reinvented himself. And he's driving the ball with a lot of authority, as you said. He's always been a pretty good hard, hard contact guy. But even at that, he was 111-108 the last two years, which is around 10% over league average. He's at 127 this year, so he's made a pretty substantial jump there. As you said, he's got everything else going in his favor. And the uh, the big change, of course, is that's that change from 30% fly balls to 50% fly balls and an offsetting decrease in ground balls. And he's not fleet of foot, so uh, I know that there are are those out there who say look if you hit fly balls it's harmful on your batting average and I say I understand that there's more fly balls go for outs but when you're hitting ground balls and you run as poorly as Yonder Alonso does those are pretty much automatic outs too and uh, his expected batting average is 322 his actual batting average is below that so he may even have some upside in batting average Jock. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, that contact rate isn't right now isn't that bad. I mean, it's obviously below uh, below what it was. It's 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 dipped down when I wrote the column from eighty five percent in previous years to seventy four percent now. But as you've said, the eighty five percent wasn't doing him any favors. He wasn't hitting a lot of home runs. He's already at a career high eleven home runs now in in uh, early mid May, um, and uh, I'll I'll trade off that that. 10% uh, change dip in uh, in contact rate for that kind of power. I think some of this is sustainable. In 2015-16 combined, he had 836 at-bats and 12 home runs. This year, he has 99 at-bats and 11 home runs. Whatever he's doing, it seems to be working. And, of course, his RBIs are shooting upwards as well. He's halfway to last year's total, despite being one-fifth of the way to his at-bat total. Everything about Yonder Alonso points in the right direction here. And like you, I read that uh, Fangraphs piece by Eno. And like you, I didn't pay close enough attention to it. And like you, I sure wish I had it. I'd rather have him than Justin Smoke, which is who I ended up with at the corner. Yeah, you and I are, uh, are pretty much in sync on this one. I'm, I'm 
Again, I'm fortunate I get to watch a lot of late games uh, here on the coast. Uh, I watched Andre Alonso hit two home runs uh, this past week, one of them to dead center. Center. I got to watch him uh, sit on pitches and be patient. I came away awfully, awfully impressed. It's a good sign for Oakland that they're getting some production there because that's uh, unfortunately not a real strong and successful team this year, and they, their pitching is not helping either. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out with the analysis. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview with the legend. It's Lenny Melnick next on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our regular feature interview. Real pleased to be able to say hello to a friend of mine and a legend around fantasy baseball, Lenny Melnick from LennyMelnickFantasySports.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Radio. Lenny Melnick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. My pleasure. Always, you know what, Patrick, I'm telling you something, man. I remember listening to you when I was a kid, <laughs> and it's just great to be on with you now. Yeah, I, I remember that too, talking about Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner. Oh, those were the days. Right, and Geringer and all those guys, it was it was fabulous, and it's really an honor to be uh, on it now, what is it, about 80 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Hey, uh, speaking of that, in a Twitter post, uh, Lenny, you raised a somewhat rhetorical question for baseball fans. Who is the better center fielder, you asked? Was it Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, or Duke Snyder? And I, I'm wondering, uh, that's uh, right when you were probably getting super involved in baseball as a fan, at least, uh, as a young man, and uh, I'm wondering... Who did you think was better? Well, it's you know what's interesting? I grew up in Queens, New York, when the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Giants, and the New York Yankees. And, and in 1957, I, I think I peaked in 1957. I was 10 years old. And in those days, we picked our friends based upon what baseball team you rooted for. Our only other worries were, in addition to our baseball team, our baseball cards and our Little League team. That was it. That's what I grew up with. And I was a Dodger fan. And you know what? There was a period of time where Edwin Donald Snyder, the Duke of Flatbush, was as good or better than Mickey or Willie. Uh, maybe about three or four years. But for the career, you can't, you can never say that anybody could top Willie Mays. Uh, Mickey was great. Of course, the Duke, he, he, he fell off a little bit. But there was a period of time in my youth that Duke Snyder was the number one guy. So I'll say it's Willie, but it's it's been the burning question uh, of baseball from those from my era that uh, we still argue about. Yeah, and I've uh, been involved in some of those arguments. Even nowadays, people look at the, the new statistics that we have, wins above replacement, runs above replacement, all these kind of things. that We can go back and, and look at the statistics over time, and, and then you get into that whole argument about career versus peak, and this is something that people actually argue about when they're talking about who belongs in the Hall of Fame. Does a really fantastic peak 
uh, offset the fact that maybe the career wasn't so long. That was the argument that got made for Sandy Koufax, of course. And is there an argument to be made that a really long career overshadows the fact that there was no real big peak? And that's like, uh, I'm thinking of... Uh, Don Sutton had a very long career without a super big peak. Uh, do you think one is more important than the other when you're talking about best ever kind of questions? Well, best ever refers to a career, in my opinion. But when you're talking about fantasy seasons, if you want to talk fantasy baseball, you know what you can help me with? Next At the next first pitch forum in Arizona, I would like to do an auction draft of from the era from 1953 to 1958, let's take a five, six-year period where we're bidding on Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, and then when the draft is over, we pull out the year we're going to use for the stats. I mean, Mantle, Mays, Aaron, Clemente, Frank Robinson, all those guys played in those five or six years. Let's do an auction format. I'd love to bid 31 on Willie. <laughs> Have somebody go 32 on Mickey and see where it takes us. But I, I, I'd like to do that next year at the first pitch forum, and I think we'd, we'd find a lot of guys willing to do it. So uh, let's get the ball rolling. And then at the end, you pick out, and then, what, an hour or two later, we'll find out who the winner is, right? Because we use stats from the year that we pick out of the hat. You can do that. I've actually been in a league once where they used a, a simulation-type program, not unlike the uh, Stratomatic online version or the uh, score sheet online version, where they just ran a season based on the expectations of those players. And so you didn't actually ha have the advantage of knowing how a guy actually did. There was still that random element of uh, how a guy probably would have done, what, given what the computer had in its mind as far as their peak seasons. I, I wonder if you might have some good success doing that for all the decades of, you know, say we're going to do the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and maybe even the 80s, given the ages of guys at first pitch. Always a lot of fun. And of course, Hal Richmond, a dear friend of mine who invented Stratomatic, I've used that. I've also used All Star Baseball uh, with the discs. You put the discs in. You can still get uh, discs of any era for All Star Baseball. Of course, you know, Babe Ruth had the big home run. Nellie Fox didn't have any home run, number one. Uh, and uh, it's uh, 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 that's a quick game that could be played in about thirty minutes. So any format, though, anytime I think, and I still have my baseball cards from that era, and I have them on my wall in frames. And believe it or not, now these are the cards I played with as a kid, Patrick, not the cards that I bought on eBay or whatever. And I've grown so close to these cards that at night, sometimes I say good night to Hank Aaron, I say good night to Frank Robinson and Willie and all. Those. I say good night, they're my friends. Well, if they ever start saying goodnight back, that's when you got some uh, questions. That's, that's a big one. So, matter of fact, one day I came home and Andrea was sorting out my car. She was doing me a favor. She was putting them all in teams and then putting them in a, in a box. Uh, prior to that, I just had them at random in a box. She thought it was random. I came home and I saw what she was doing. I said, you can't have those two guys in the same box. They'll kill each other. They hate each other. It's uh, yeah, it gets a little wacko, but you know something. Uh, I've learned a lot about baseball. I've learned a lot about camaraderie and about teamwork and all that stuff. So I'm not ashamed to say that I love my cards same way I did when I was a kid. Yeah, I remember having them as a kid too. They were playthings for us. We swapped them. We put them in our bicycle spokes. We uh, abused them terribly, I guess you'd have to say, and that's why they're so valuable now is that so few people actually hung on to them with the with the sense that they were an investment. And I, I thought when 
I, I'm of the age where I was just a little too old for the transition to cards as investment. And I, I kind of thought when I saw my friends buying them and then, you know, hoarding them away in safety deposit boxes and, and lined crates and so forth, I knew a guy who had five, 6,000 cards in his garage in these, you know, airtight cases. And I thought somehow this guy's missing the fun of it. Well, I'll tell you what, I have a couple of thousand cards myself. I got the 54 Topps hockey set, 57 basketball, 58 football. But you'll never guess. Everybody says the Harness Wagner card is the most valuable card, and it very well may be. But there, you know, it's all supply and demand. There's one card that has not been found that would be the most uh, uh, price-worthy card. And nobody will guess what it is. I'll guess. But it was 1957. It was a very, a very popular year for baseball cards. And to this day, they have not recovered a checklist in great condition. We either threw them out or we marked them up. But you find a checklist in grade A condition, and that very well could be, the, based on supply and demand, the most valuable baseball card you could have. I was going to guess Joe Slobotnik. Uh, well, you know, uh, Ray Jablonski was a third baseman for the <laughs> Cincinnati the Phillies. But no, it was, it's the, it, just think about it. That, that was a legitimate card. And if you got it, you either, you either checked off the cards that you had or you just threw it away. Because who, whoever collected the checklist, if you could find one in great shape, somebody let me know. I think every guy who kept the checklist for any length of time grew up to be an accountant. <laughs> That's right. You got it, you know, that's right, so go find one. Getting back to this idea of center fielders, since the great battle of Willie, Mickey, and the Duke back in the late 50s, uh, mid-50s, early 60s, we've uh, kind of established a bit of a pecking order there, I think. Uh, has there been anybody better since, though? Uh, do you think maybe Ken Griffey Jr., does Mike Trout have a chance to surpass any of these guys? What do you think about the newer players as far as Willie, Mickey, and the Duke are concerned? Well, of course, for the year, Mike Trout could wind up being the greatest player ever. And, of course, people ask me, Lenny, why didn't you put Joe DiMaggio in that, in that mix? Joe was a little earlier than Will, uh, Willie Mickey and the Duke, so I don't include him in that. And, of course, the song by Terry Cashman, that authenticated Willie Mickey and the Duke. Uh, today, you've you got to say Ken Griffey's right up there. You've got to say Trout could surpass all these guys. But, you know, so there's something about the beauty of Willie Mickey and the Duke. That's the argument that may go on forever among the guys who experienced great baseball in the 1950s where Bob Gibson wouldn't commiserate with anybody before the game. He'd likely spit in their face if it's the other team. That's when baseball was, uh, I'll say, for real. So, uh, I don't, But you can say the shortstops, you know, when you had A-Rod and you had Garcia Parra and you had uh, uh, Miguel Tejada, uh, as the three top shortstops, and you could even say Derek Cheater, but he wasn't included among the offensive uh, shortstops that came into play with A-Rod and Garcia Power and Tejada. And right now you got Korea, and you got you got a bunch of shortstops now. And the question is, you got Korea, you got Corey Sager. Uh, could today's shortstops equal the A-Rod, the Tejada, and the Garcia Power? Yeah, and those are the kind of debates that keep uh, keep bars in in profit and keep us all interested in the game, and that's uh, that's part of the fun of it. Again, is just doing all this arguing. Uh, moving on to fantasy baseball, Lenny, how are your teams doing? I'm, I'm doing okay. 
my whole fantasy season depends on Carlos Martinez. If he doesn't come, I lost Madison Baumgartner in the Sirius XM Host League, but I had Jake DeGrom and Madison Baumgartner. I was going pitching heavy in that league. There's a lot of reasons why, but I lost Carlos Mart. I lost a Baumgartner, and people are trying to, you know, trying to make trades. Just give me a pitcher. If Carlos Martinez does well, I'll do great there in the labor league. I think I'm either second or third uh, in the in, in tout wars. Um, uh, I moved up to fifth place. So it's all about, you know, I'm still in the hunt and everything. And, uh, you know, of course, in the Labor League, I didn't have Ian Desmond. You know, he got hurt. So now that he's back, uh, I think I'll contend in all three of my important leagues. But, uh, you know, anything can happen. And even though they say it's still early, let me tell you something. If I don't have a good opening day, I get depressed. So don't tell me it's still early. All right? I'm hustling and jiving. There was one time that I even made a trade during the course of the draft. I traded Danny Tartable straight up for uh, Roberto Kelly because I wanted the Roberto Kelly stolen bases. So I don't sit and wait to see how my team, I know what I got, I know what I need, and I'm starting to make some moves right now. Well, a lot of people are making moves, Lenny, with regard to the Tigers' bullpen. A few days ago, you were tweeting that Frankie Rodriguez was probably on his way out because he's been awful, and uh, Justin Wilson has drawn in, according to manager Brad Osmus. He's got a pretty good strikeout rate, a pretty low walk rate, uh, but there's some issues. He's left-handed. The Tigers only have Blaine Hardy besides that to get left-handers out. Where do you see this closer role ending up? Well, just like it was said by Brad Ausmus, uh, they're trying to, ultimately, they'd like to get K-Rod back on track. When they announced that Justin Wilson was going to be the closer, he said, for now. You have to read that carefully. It's very easy to read. In, the, in his quote, he said, for now. So, uh, from fantasy land, I would say, don't drop K-Rod so quickly. He may very well come back to haunt you. But with the Justin Wilson thing, with the advent of the new way of baseball, and I'm very proud of Andrea, who wrote an article in Peter Kreitzer's magazine about something that she coined five years ago, never had a chance to get it out in public, called the effector. And you saw Andrew Miller last year, the guy who comes in, uh, the best pitcher in the bullpen, closer, setup man, whoever he is, comes in with the, in the high leverage situation with the game on the line. And that's what they like about Justin Wilson. Same thing with Matt Bush in Texas. They, they've said this. They'd rather have Matt Bush as the effector, the guy to come in in the seventh or eighth inning. They, they feel the same way about Justin Wilson, but for now somebody has to take over. I know the intriguing option could be Shane, uh, Shane Green, who absolutely has, in my opinion, the best stuff, and he's got the mentality, and he had a 1.4 year rate last time I looked, and he has always, I've followed this kid, I really thought he might be the closer, uh, early on in the year, and he's been excelling any time he enters the game in the high-pressure situation. And and I just think that um, we'll see what happens with Wilson, but that effector guy, that, that guy who can come in with running second and third and one out in a, in a close game and not let the game get away, the guy who can come in and get you to the ninth inning, and if you take a look, Patrick, at all the bullpens, the landscape of all the bullpens, everybody's got a, a secondary closer, somebody who's got experience. may not have been successful, but has the experience so that your oldest Chapman, whoever you want, can come in, get out of the seventh inning so you can get to the ninth, 
and we'll take our chances with somebody with experience. And that's one of the two changes going on in Major League Baseball regarding the pitching department. Yeah, we've been talking about that here at Baseball HQ Radio for the last few weeks. There are teams, Cincinnati, I think, is in the lead really in insofar as getting these uh, p- pitcher matchups the way they want them rather than 7th inning, 8th inning, ninth inning, and, and multi- multiple inning outings for, for pitchers, which means you get more innings out of your best pitchers during the year, which is obviously good now. What do you think about this Joe Jimenez? Uh, he came up, he struggled pretty badly in five early appearances with the Tigers, but back down in the minors, he's been sensational. And he, he's got 162 games pitched, a 1-5 ERA, an 0-81 whip, and he's striking out 38% of hitters, uh, including two per inning this season in Toledo and AAA, and only 7% walks. These are fantastic numbers. So, Lenny, how likely do you think it is we see Joe Jimenez closing games in Detroit this season? Fantastic numbers in the minor leagues. It didn't translate in the time period that he was called up. Look, if you follow baseball, you know the Tigers are in it to contend this year. Uh, That's why they didn't uh, sell off the team like many people thought. Cleveland seems to be their only real competition with Minnesota. Uh, I know they're in second place. Nobody likes their pitching staff. We we all who knows about the White Sox? They may sell off too. Kansas City's going to sell off. The Tigers are in it. And it's rare that you rely on your youngster, your rookie, to close the games. Now, it very well may happen if they can't find anybody else. But I do think that uh, this may not be the year of Jimenez. I think that uh, uh, Shane Green will get the shot over him. I think perhaps Alex Wilson could get the shot over him. But right now it's going to be Justin Wilson. And uh, the real key is can K-Rod regroup and come back? Who knows? But I know he'll be given the opportunity, so I'm not in on grabbing uh, Jimenez just right now. I have to say, I don't share your optimism about K-Rod getting the job back. I can see that they might give him another opportunity, but he just doesn't seem to have the stuff anymore. It seems to have largely left him. Now, you mentioned Kansas City. They're really struggling. I think they're the worst team in the American League at this point, even worse than Toronto after a long losing streak. And Lenny, they've got a bullpen ace down there in Kelvin Herrera, obviously a trade chip if you're looking to bolster your prospects and strengthen your organization. Any chance do you think that Joaquin Soria ends up closing games down in Kansas City? And if not him, assuming that Herrera does get traded, who else does Kansas City have, do you think? Well, yeah, I do think you're right. I think Soria, who does have a track record of closing games, and there's no question that Kansas City, I mean, Kansas City, in my opinion, is going to be the first team to start unloading. Okay, that's the first team. If not, if not Kansas City, it may be Toronto. And there has been talk, of course, Washington, we all know that that's a mess uh, in Washington, and uh, I know there has been some discussions of Herrera going to Washington. I, I can't see Washington revisiting the Chicago White Sox for the Robertson thing, but I could see Kansas City trading Herrera and maybe even Lorenzo Kane with the injury to Adam Eaton. So the Kane Herrera, the only problem is I don't know who Washington can give up. They don't. They depleted themselves when they traded Lopez and they traded Giolito. So uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do, but I, I would. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Soria. You're right. Soria would be a tremendous pickup there. 
Absolutely. So I think that Herrera will be on the market. Buster only reported a couple of weeks ago that uh, Herrera was being coveted by Washington. The question will be, what do they want in return? If it's not, uh, if it's not Soria, there's really, uh, you know, they got a bunch of guys. They got Matt Stram there. They got uh, nobody. Al Albuquerque still on this team. You don't hear a lot about this guy, but uh, I think Soria is the man. I think you hit that right on the head. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lenny Melnick from LennyMelnickFantasyBaseball.com, and Lenny spends a lot of time at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio as well. And uh, Lenny, you posted on Facebook recently a link to a story about the Phillies and how their best-known prospects, Dylan Cozens, Roman Quinn, Nick Williams, Jorge Alfaro, and J.P. Crawford, are really swinging and missing, striking out a lot more than league average in the minors, and Alfaro and Williams are also walking even less. What do you think is going to be the fallout from this hacktastic approach by these young Phillies prospects? Well, you know, we all rely on sabermetrics, Patrick. Sabermetrics, the name of the game, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's now mainstream in the Major League Baseball community, mainstream in the fantasy community. But there's one thing that's not a sabermetric, but uh, the initials are CS, and that would be common sense. And common sense says the most important thing for a pitcher in Major League Baseball is to do what? It's to get that first strike. Everybody wants to get that first strike. And the Phillies are just another team. Cincinnati has picked up on it, too. If you take a look at Zach Cozart, Zach Cozart swings at the first pitch all the time. And he's hitting tremendously since he started doing that. Uh, Skip Schumacher was the one who pointed that out to Zach Cozart. Start being more aggressive. Start swinging at the first pitch. The Phillies are preaching that. If you know that the pitcher who is facing you, is trying to get that first strike, chances are that first pitch may be the best pitch you're going to get to swing at. And that's what they're preaching down in Philadelphia. It used to be, let's wait them out, you know, let's make the pitcher work for it. Not anymore. You'll see more and more in Major League Baseball that they're going for the first pitch. And then, of course, what the pitchers are doing, now they are countering. They're not putting that that first pitch all over the plate. So if you have great pitch recognition, if you have a knowledge of the strike zone, and you let that first pitch go, now you're swinging on the second pitch because it's the counters in your favor 0-1. It's the whole key is be aggressive. Look out for that first pitch. If it's in the zone, then go after it. It may be the best pitch that you're going to get. And you got Cousins, you got Toskins, you got Quinn, you got Williams, Alfaro, all these guys. They're all doing it. Because in Major League Baseball, as we all know, the premium is on power, and nobody gives a hoot and nanny about strikeouts anymore. So swing as you want, and also uh, the other thing that they're preaching is is, is pitch recognition, and, um, and and the walk rate is pretty good. But swing and misses, they don't care about that anymore. That's not going to hold anybody back. You'll see Joseph has started hitting at first base in Philadelphia. Uh, Had he stayed in the slump, and if he does go into another slump, Hoskins is red hot. Rice Hoskins will get the call. They're not going to be afraid to call up any of these guys as long as they're doing well. I was listening to a Blue Jays telecast the other night, and there's two ex-players in the booth, Pat Tabler and Buck Martinez, and they were enthusiastically saying the secret to hitting success nowadays is, in fact, to go up there swinging. And one of them even said 
Hitters should chase pitches outside the zone. Now, I understand the logic of swinging when you think they're going to throw a, a first-pitch fastball right down the middle to try to get ahead. But do you believe that you can be aggressive in the sense that you should be chasing pitches that are you know outside and low? Oh, that's that's way that's way out of here for me. I, I can't. You know, look. First of all, who am I to argue with Pat Tavler, who was one of the best hitters in the game with the bases loaded, and he was a pretty good clutch hitter. I can't. I, I can't even fathom why anybody would say that, but I'm sure they have good reasoning. All I can say is is two things, and. You take a look at Brandon Belt. He doesn't swing at the first pitch. I think he all year long, I think he's only put 11 balls in play that were the first pitch, first strike. Uh, he doesn't swing at a 3-0 and pitch. I say you've got to be more aggressive on the first pitch because you know the pitcher's trying to get it over the plate for a strike. And 3-0, and you know he's trying to get it over the plate. So hack away. Those are the two things I can agree on. Those are the things I could understand. Why swinging out of the zone? Patrick, forgive me, I can't claim to know enough to even comment on that. To me, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I know baseball has changed, and I will tell you, I was talking to a scout at the Arizona Fall League, and I noticed that these players, they had what used to be called in my day a hitch. You would take your bat back, you would drop it down a little bit, and then you'd swing. And I used to be told, Eddie, you got a hitch in your swing. you got to just, now it's called a trigger. And scouts tell me they would never draft anybody without a trigger. So I don't know where the game is going, but as far as swinging out of the strike zone, that's something I can't, I can't even comment on. It. I have no clue. It is an interesting thing in, in baseball, like any sort of uh, per- competitive pursuit, shall we say, that new ideas find their way in with difficulty, and then they become the new, the new idea becomes the old idea, and it becomes very difficult to get out of the game again and then after a while people start thinking hey wait a second maybe this isn't such a good idea and there's a an ongoing pattern of evolution but sometimes it's pretty hard to get that evolution to continue yeah especially if you take a look at at pitching i mean how many guys have been taken out so far this year with uh, no hitters going because here's the thing it has been known for a long time patrick that third time around in the batting order pitchers that's when pitchers get clobbered you, know, you see a pitcher twice and the whole deal. I think we all know that. So why does it make any sense with the bullpens being fortified with guys that can throw 150, 160 miles an hour, right? Why would it make any sense for any starting pitcher to come out for the seventh inning? It doesn't. I mean, unless they have a tremendous game going, I wouldn't even let the starting pitcher come out for the seventh inning. I'd automatically put my seventh inning guy in who's throwing 100 miles an hour, and you know I would take it from there because statistics show third time around is when the starting pitchers get belted. So that's just another thing that I think is happening in baseball. And as a result of that, by the end of the year, you'll see that a lot of starting pitchers, their innings will be down. And the setup guy or the guy who comes in the seventh and the eighth, his innings will be up a little bit. And that's will narrow the differential, which will make the setup guys and those uh, relief pitchers a little bit more valuable in terms of ERA and whip because their innings will be a little bit uh, more effective than they have been because they're getting more chances, more innings, and the starters are getting a little bit less. 
One of the year's early surprises, Lenny, has been Houston utility man Marwin Gonzalez. Last time I checked, he's had an on-base percentage around 380, which was 90 points up from last year. His OPS is over 1,000. It's like a 300-point surge from his career track record. He's got nine home runs in 100 plate appearances. He had 13 all of last year in 500. Maybe the main reason for his breakout, according to what I hear from the Houston broadcasters and in uh, online media, is that he has found plate patience. He's got the, exactly the opposite of what they're doing with Zach Cozart and what these guys in Toronto's broadcast booth are saying. He has cut his strikeouts down from 22% all the way down to 17 and tripled his walks from 4 to 12%. It sounds like he's making a very conscious effort to make sure he's swinging at pitches in the strike zone. How much do you buy what seems to be an explainable improvement in a guy like Marwin Gonzalez who has never been that impressive? I don't buy it at all. I, you know, his success has been at the beginning of the year where it really jumps off the page. Um, had he had this in July and August, this streak. Uh, by the way, he's a guy who I think this is a major league. His first 25 career home runs were all hit with the bases empty. Just an interesting stat on Marwin, but I, I'm not buying it. Look, if he hits 15 home runs for the whole year, I think that'll be terrific. And one of the reasons is this. First, I didn't see it in spring training. I mean, spring training, he only hit about 230, something like that. He has 65 at-bats, so I didn't see it. I know he's swinging away. But here's the deal. He's not going to get He'll get his at-bats, but he's not going to get enough playing time to really continue. I just think he's got a hot streak that's going on at the beginning of the year where he really stands out. He's very valuable. He's played every position except catcher in his career. He he can be, you know, this allows Houston to pinch hit for any any player, any position, and then put Marlon Gonzalez in the game. When a player has that kind of resume and that kind of ability as that super utility guy, sure he'll get his at-bats, but I don't believe we should go out on a free agent budget or anything else or at least or attempt to trade for a guy who very well could finish the season with, 15 homer. I mean, I don't even know how many he has now. He's got seven or eight. But, you know, and, and still, even during the season, you know, he, doesn't have a, he doesn't have a track record. Uh, even this year, he had a slump, a one for 30, one for 25. He had some kind of a slump. He wasn't hitting. So I just think he's having a hot streak. He's a good player. He's a very useful fantasy guy who can fill in at almost every position. But uh, to think that this guy is going to emerge as a star because his walk rate's up a little bit. I just think it's a streak, and I wouldn't go out of my way to get him. I would I would certainly get him, but not give up a lot of value to get him in a trade. But walking is not really a, a streaky kind of thing, a lucky kind of thing. Walking is more of a skill. It shows some discernment at the plate. So it's not, do you think it's fair to say that he's just lucky in getting all these walks? Because I know he's got hot and cold streaks with the bat. Sometimes hits, the balls are falling in for hits. Sometimes they're not. But walks seem to be something that a, that the batter has a lot of control over by not swinging at pitches that are outside the strike zone. And his walk rate isn't up a little. It's up from 4% to 12 He's tripled his walk rate. And do you think that the walk rate is going to fall off? Is that is that your position? No, I just don't think he's that good a hitter when he's swinging. And I know he may be swinging at better pitches. He can say that. Who, who knows? His walk rate, I don't say the walk rate doesn't mean anything. And I don't think uh, it's, it, I, it is possible for him to have a very good season. But overall, as a player, like I said, if he hits 15 home runs, that's a great year. I didn't see, I didn't see, the, I didn't see the guy 
practicing what is what he's he's doing now in spring training. I took a look. He walked very few times. So I just think this is a streak he's going through. And I understand that you're right. It is a skill laying off those pitches. But uh, when he does swing and make contact, uh, he's just not that. He's just not anybody that's anything special, in my opinion. So I do think that this walk rate probably means he's going to be a better hitter. But he, but here's the guy. Uh, last time I looked, he was sitting about two seventy one, two seventy two, something like that. In the last three years, he's hit two sixty seven. So except for the home runs, I don't see that big of a difference. And what has he got? Seven or eight home runs now. If for the rest of the season. He hit seven or eight home runs. I think he'll be pretty lucky. Well, I'm not saying he's got nine home runs right now, by the way, in 90 plate appearances, and I'm not suggesting that if he gets 500 plate appearances, he'll keep hitting the one every 10 to get 50 home runs. But yeah, so what is he going to do that's going to be so special? I still think he'll be 15 home runs. He's hitting only three or four points higher than his, his uh, last three years. So I, I just, I don't like he's playing, he's playing all the positions. Fantasy-wise, he's making headlines. But I'm I'm not a big fan. And he had the one for twenty seven streak. I think it was twenty seven during the course of the season already. So we've seen the slump, we've seen the burst, but we also see what's the big deal except for a couple of home runs, sitting three or four points higher than he's done in the last three years. Yeah, except that over those last three years, he was hitting two seventy with a batting average on balls in play around three hundred or three twenty. This year, it's at two twenty. So if he if he actually starts getting some hitters' luck, his average is going to go up by thirty five points. It seems like all the signs are pointing to Marwin Gonzalez actually being maybe a little better than he's shown so far. And I'm curious that you're so pessimistic. I'm just pessimistic about his overall numbers. I think he could he's capable of putting together both the hot streak that he's been on. And the one for 27 cold streak. You think that's going to be the end of his cold streaks? I don't think so. So I think it'll even out that he'll have a nice year. And if he hits 273, 274, five points higher than he's done the last five years. And if he hits uh, 15 home runs, I know he has nine, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm just not looking at this guy to be a, uh, a phenomenal breakout player. Okay, Lenny, I'll tell you what. You take 275 for his average and 15 home runs. I'll take the over on both. You got it, man. So right. I, that's it. It's going to be Patrick Davitt buying me hot dogs and a beer at the Arizona Folly. Can't wait. <laughs> or possibly the other way around, and I like the Bratwurst. So bring your wallet. I like the Bratwurst. Let me tell you something, man. I'll do it anyway. Win or lose. That's how much I appreciate you. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lenny Melnick from Lenny Melnick Fantasy Baseball.com and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And Lenny, I'd like to talk about the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. There's been a really interesting thread going on there about how to value players when you're trying to make trades in keeper leagues. And I know you've been playing the game a long time, so before we start talking about trading in particular, how do you like playing in keeper league formats? I don't. I don't like keeper leagues, and the reason is this. Uh, I've seen too many people at the end of a draft, of a snake draft, not even just guessing and picking a player and having those players uh, emerge as a keeper through nothing else than luck. Same thing in the auction format. Guy has a couple of dollars left. I'll take this guy because he's a dollar. When I play in the keeper leagues, what I try to do is this. Nobody is a keeper unless they go for $5 or more. That tells me that they wanted the guy. If you want the guy and you can spend $5 in an auction format on a player 
to me, that means you went out and got them. If you spend one dollar, a lot of luck involved. Uh, same thing in the in the snake draft. Um, if you draft them, uh, depends how many rounds you're going to go in the snake draft. But it's it, it, it can't be within the last five rounds. Uh, so I, I I'm very you know I don't like that, that. There's enough luck in fantasy baseball uh, with the games and the injuries and all that stuff. I don't want to put any more luck into it by a guy getting a one dollar player doesn't even know who he is but just re- recently read about him uh maybe a week ago they take him because they need a shortstop and bingo he emerges to me that's too much luck i don't like the keeper leagues i love the redraft leagues uh but i am in a couple of keeper leagues and that's one of the rules that we have and also the other thing is this and i don't believe in any fantasy baseball league that the winner should be determined by a trade, and those are the dumping trades. So I always take the position that if you're making a dump, you trade a player, the player that is traded cannot be kept, and that prevents the dumping trades. Uh, I just don't, I understand we're trying to mimic baseball and the whole deal, but we can't, we're not mimicking, but we can't. I don't see anybody expanding the rosters in September. There's a lot of things we just can't do, but I will not be in a league where the winner is determined by making a stupid trade so that somebody can lower It just doesn't make any sense. That devalues the entire draft. It just, it, to me, I don't like it. So I take the position that any player that's traded cannot be kept. And that's, uh, that's what I think of keeper leagues. We had a league, my first league that I played in for any length of time had uh, dumping trade problems, and that's how we solved it. In fact, we said, if you trade a player, he's a free agent next year, period. And that uh, got, a, got a lot of people's noses out of joint temporarily. <laughs> but you know what You know what I didn't like about it, Lenny, was this. It allows people who aren't having good drafts and aren't really doing their homework to cash in by trading away guys everybody knows, like Carlos Correa or uh, Jose Altuve or something like that, and they get in three or four top prospects, and then sometime down the road they cash those in and, and win their league. But they haven't actually done anything to earn it, if you if you want me to be frank. I just don't like dump trading. But lot, lots of guys do, and I understand that. So let's get back to this question. The, the, guy, the guy in the Baseball HQ subscriber forum said he has Randall Gritchuk at $7 for the rest of this year and all of next. And he was trying to make a deal with a guy to get Bryce Harper at $37 and David Peralta for $11, but they're both expiring contracts. Now, the guy with Gritchuk says Gritchuk's about a $14 player. So he offers about $42 in total value, $14 in actual value times two plus $7 in profit times two. So he wants back the overpriced Harper and Peralta, and he thinks this is a fair way to value the players in a dump deal. Everybody disagreed. I have to say this right off the, right off the, off the, off the jump. Everybody disagreed with him. They said he's being unrealistic about the valuation. How do you think, given the difficulties of valuing this year versus next year, how should owners think about player valuation in dump trading? Well, first of all, I won't allow a dump trade. That's for, for, for the reason I just said. No league winner is to be determined by a trade. So that goes right out the window. I won't play in it. I don't like it. But here's the thing. A couple of years ago, when Albert Pujols was at his peak, I traded straight up. I traded Albert Pujols straight up for Joan Figgins when Joan Figgins was in his heyday and stealing 30, 40 bases. The league commissioner voided the deal, saying Lenny got ripped off. However, 
I was heavy in home runs and RBIs. I needed the stolen bases to win the league. I finally convinced the own, the uh, commissioner of this uh, situation. They let me have the trade, and I won the league. I take the position very clearly. When you have a questionable trade, it's not about how much money involved, and that's nothing. Both participants of the trade must tell clearly how it helps them get into the money or win the league. If you can't, without speculating by saying uh, um, Yonder Diaz is going to hit 30 home runs, you're going to give a realistic appraisal as to how this helps you get into the money. And if you're trading Joan Figgins for Albert Pujols, I explained it very simply. That puts me in. i got plenty of power. I may lose one or two points, but I'll gain five or six points and win the league. If both owners cannot tell why they made the deal and adequately show how it helps them, I will not allow the trade. The only caveat to that, Patrick, is maybe in the first month of the season. Last year in a league, there was a trade made that almost ruined the league. The trade was this. Andrew McCutcheon straight up for Dexter Fowler. And the, uh, the league went crazy. How could you trade Andrew McCutcheon for Dexter Fowler straight up? The first month of the season, I think we're all entitled to our opinion. The owner who traded Andrew McCutcheon for Dexter Fowler had a strong belief that Dexter Fowler was going to be better. And for the first month of the season, you're entitled to that, I believe, within reason. But after that, the commissioner really has to step on it. Again, no league should be won by a trade. People just making dumb trades. I will not. I don't. I don't. I just don't buy it. I'm not going for that. But if you can, in the first couple of weeks of the season, identify why it helps you and why you like that player, I say anything goes at the beginning. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lenny Melnick from Lenny Melnick, FantasySports.com, and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And Lenny, you also have a podcast. It's a live streaming podcast that can also be listened to after the fact. And one of the interesting things about it is it runs kind of in conjunction with a uh, online chat room that runs kind of simultaneously with the broadcast, and your, your chat participants can ask questions and then listen to the answers and so forth. It's a really interesting thing. And you've called the whole setup a fantasy fantasy sports community and I know what that means but how does it affect and improve the experience for you and for the listeners well I can only say you know when you get into the broadcasting you think you're going to be on Sirius radio MLB radio national TV that Irwin's willing I both did together uh, you think of the fame the fortune whatever you think about you know what the biggest perk is meeting some of the greatest people that I have met in my life in fantasy baseball and some of the listeners that I've had have been with me for 20 years and we open up this chat room every morning and people come 40 50 60 people every morning Patrick and I don't even think they're listening to me but they've all become friends there was one time a couple of months ago somebody said Lenny I won't be here on Monday I'll be in Atlanta sure enough two people who live in Atlanta say hey I live in Atlanta I'll take you out to lunch come on over it's, it is a genuine community where we, everybody is a fantasy baseball lover, and we all have opinions, and we all help each other. They know someone at Lenny Melnick, what do you think, blah, blah, blah. And I ask them for advice as well. So we all get together, 
I prepare a podcast. By the way, I prepare a one-hour podcast. It takes me three hours to prepare, and it's the best time of the morning. From 5 to 8 in the morning, I'm preparing for a 45 to one-hour podcast. And the people show up, and as a community, we all help each other. We run a couple of leagues on the site where you don't put any money in, but the winners get money. And it's a lot of fun, great camaraderie. And this is the thing I'm most proud of. You know, I've won some major titles, and I'm on Sirius and the whole thing. But the thing I'm proud of the most is this community of the greatest people that I have met, Patrick. And you know what? It's modeled a little bit after Baseball HQ. I mean, when I go to the Arizona Fall League and the first pitch forum, I'm embraced by people that I see once a year, and I feel like I know these guys. And that's what I try to do, create the same kind of atmosphere. And I think that's what we have. So thanks to Baseball HQ, thanks to you and to Ron and all you guys. Uh, I think I've come up with something really good. It is really good, and uh, something I've noticed uh, in years of being involved with the BaseballHQ.com and, and the subscriber forums over there is what you say, uh, when you get involved in these conversations, these people are really smart, and they're very experienced players, and they have really interesting opinions, and for every you know, 10 words that I've provided them on advice about how to do things better. They've provided me with 500. I'm sure of it with great. Oh, seriously, great advice, great concepts, really clear thinking, willing to say, Hey, you're, you're the guy who's getting paid to be a baseball analyst, but have you thought of this? And so a lot of times you haven't thought of this and you should have thought of this. And as a result, I'm, I'm a better fantasy player now and a better fantasy baseball analyst now, because I've had this channel to listen to the people out there who want to talk with me, not just have me talk at them. Exactly. And I will be very candid with you, man. Uh, these people have taught me a lot. People come up to me and they say, how could you do a solo podcast every morning for an hour that's up to date with everything that we want to know? And I say, first of all, it's not solo. All right? <laughs> I'm doing it with 45, 50 other people who are giving me ideas and telling me various things along the way. Sometimes they don't even listen to me. They have their own conversations. But the fact is is that um, we have a lot of fun, and it's all about the camaraderie. Again, something I've learned from Baseball HQ. Uh, so it's just a remarkable, it's a remarkable experience for me, and I thank everybody who has come on and giving me probably the most enjoyment that I've had in 23 years in this industry. And something I wanted to ask you about that I saw either online somewhere, I think it was at your site, but it might have been through Facebook, we were talking about the pro Phillies prospects and how often they swing. And it, you went even further on the site, and I'm quoting, J.P. Crawford is the most overrated prospect I've seen in a long time. These are strong words, Lonnie. Why the pessimism about J.P. Crawford? Uh, I don't know if I really said that. I did, what I did say is all you people who failed to draft Cesar Hernandez or Freddie Galvis because of J.P. Crawford, and I said this in preseason, you made a big mistake. Uh, Crawford's hitting, what, 220? He's not hitting. He's a good fielder, but he will not take the place of Galvis and Herrera. That's what I was alluding to, the huge mistake. He may very well develop into a great prospect, but right now they are rethinking J.P. Crawford coming up even for this year. So for those of you who valued him ahead of Hernandez or Galvis, big mistake. What do you think's going on with all the injuries, especially with the uh, starting pitchers? Well, I just think it's very convenient for this 10-day DL because what do you do? You miss one start, and, you know, they've 
over the years, there's been a lot of talk about a six-man rotation. We got to limit innings. Uh, we got to limit pitchers' innings and all that stuff. This 10-day DL accomplishes a lot of what they're saying about the six-man rotation and limited innings and all that stuff. I think it's great for Major League Baseball, but for fantasy baseball, I think we're missing the boat. And I've had major debates about this next topic. I think, Patrick, every league should have unlimited DL spots. And here's why. It's bad enough that you're going to lose a top player. I don't care what format, only league, mixed league, whatever it is. You get an injury of a major player, and you're already hurt. Why do you get hurt again by not having a place to put them? DL spots should be unlimited. We don't have control over who goes on the DL. Uh, there may be some caveats to it. I don't believe you can pick a DL player off the, off the waiver wire. That will prevent stashing. Uh, but to have to release a Madison Baumgartner or a player that may come back, it, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I've already been hurt by losing Baumgartner. Now I get to get hurt uh, by losing him, by dropping him, because I don't have room for him, and he may come back. And He's not going to come back, but using him as an example, he may come back, so you want to hurt me again? The name of the game is to, is to not lose the competitiveness and not really kill a team who's been so And right now you see guys, five, ten guys on the DL. That's not uncommon. If, for people to have that. Unlimited DL spots for everybody. It's not something we can manipulate. The only thing you can say is that you can't take a DL player off waiver wire. You can't do it because then you'll stash them. But uh, I'm very strong in that belief. Yeah, I don't think, Lenny, I don't think I'd play in a league that had limited DL spots or, or even worse. I was offered a spot in a league once that had no DL spots. You just had I think four reserves, and you had to use your reserves to take up your DL slots. I don't like reserve lists. I'll, t- I'll be frank about that, too. I don't think that we need them, and I don't think we should have them, especially in single-league formats where there's so few players already. Very few people agree with me. I had this debate with Craig Mish on Sirius, and people are calling me crazy. I don't get it, Patrick. I don't get it. Uh, I, I lose a big player on the DL, and i got no place for him. i got to keep him in my starting lineup. I've already been hurt by having to replace him with uh, Mickey Matuk or somebody like that. So why do I have? It doesn't make any sense. So I'm not gonna. Don't get me started because I can't. Well, I'm not gonna argue with you because I agree. <laughs> uh, thank you. I talked last week in my Master Notes commentary about Noah Syndergaard and his decision not to take an MRI that the team wanted him to take, and I'll be talking a little later on on this show about how he didn't want to talk about his health with reporters. Uh, you're in the New York area. What do you think about Noah Syndergaard in this whole situation? Well, I think it's a disaster. I, I think the Mets had to take a position. You know, I could understand if a guy gets a set. I mean, look, Stephen Matz, uh, he was told by the Met doctors that there's nothing wrong with him. He went to get a second opinion, and the doctor said, okay, you have an elbow strain. Uh, and it seemed like the Mets didn't believe him uh, when they said that their doctor said there's nothing wrong. Uh, with Syndergaard, you've got to believe. If a player doesn't want to get examined by a doctor, then you put him on the DL. You don't let him pitch until he gets examined. How could you refuse? I could see refusing surgery or getting a second opinion. But how could you say that we're not going to uh, that he's not going to subject himself to a test? 
Can a player say, I'm not taking that drug test? No. So if a team wants a player on his behalf and on the investment they've made to get an MRI, and he says no, that's their investment. They're entitled to know. Maybe we shouldn't be pitching this guy. And when a player says no, the Mets mistake right away. They should have put him on the deal. Kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face, but uh, the stories that I read about it, and I alluded to this last week when I was talking about this health situation, was that the Mets doctors told Syndergaard he didn't need an MRI, and that only came out after the fact, and eventually he did have one. And Lenny, do you think there's uh, any possibility, I speculated, that what he wanted to do was go have his own MRI before the team MRI, because he's in a, going to be in a negotiation come the end of this year for a contract extension. He's ARB eligible. And I wonder if he wanted to know where he stood rather than just going in there. Maybe the MRI shows he's got a bum elbow. All of a sudden, the Mets reduce their offer from $25 million a year down to seven, and take it or leave it, you're, you're damaged goods. I wonder if he just wanted to find out what the story was before he, uh, he uh, acquiesced in getting this MRI, which he knew was going to turn out was a lat back issue, not an elbow issue. Well, if he knew it, then he should have gone on the DL, because I'll tell you, I don't think any player in Major League Baseball will get punished for getting, I think they're all entitled to a second opinion of their own doctor. Stephen Matz did it. Syndergaard could have done it. The whole thing just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem that there's any possible rational explanation why a guy who obviously was hurting, and I say obviously because the proof is in the pudding, and wouldn't go and, and risk even hurting himself more? doesn't make any sense. I can't come up with any logical reason why the Mets wouldn't have demanded it or Syndergaard wouldn't have wanted it for his own protection. I just don't know. Well, like I said, I think he did want it for his own protection. I just don't think he wanted the Mets to know what it was until he found out what it was, and he protected himself that way. And if he knew he was in jeopardy of hurting himself, he should have allowed them to, to go on the DL. Because as we see, eventually, it's going to catch up to him. Well, he has no way of stopping them from putting him on the DL, does he? Right. Uh, what about Matt Harvey, Lenny? This whole story, this is quite a bizarre thing with the Hamptons and the uh, certain items being found in the locker room and so forth. What's going on with Matt Harvey? Is he losing his marbles over there? Well, all that is secondary. And now they say he was destroyed over a relationship with some model. I, you know what I say? Bull dinky poppycock to the whole thing. Tyson Ross, who suffered from the thoracic syndrome outlet stuff, is still just throwing. He still hasn't overcome it. He's not ready to pitch, and we're expecting Matt Harvey to throw in the mid-90s and be a good pitcher. I mean, Chris Young survived it. He's Chris Young. Josh Beckett never survived it. His career ended. Carpenter from St. Louis, his career ended. How come we're not taking a look? Our expectations for Harvey, because he started pitching, I'll give him credit for being the bulldog and wanting to go out there. People forgetting that. I don't think he was ready. And the example I'll use is Tyson Ross. You know, Tyson Ross went to Texas rather than go to Washington and pitch on his brother's team. His brother was on Washington on a team with no pitching depth. They traded it all away. They wanted Tyson Ross in Washington. He elected to go to Texas because they had more experience with the thoracic syndrome outlet. That's why he was in Texas, and he's still just starting to come back. 
How could we think that Matt Harvey was in? But Matt Harvey just closed his eyes and said, I'm pitching. I think that's a big mistake. And I think, once again, the Mets blew it. They blew it with Mats. They blew it with Syndergaard. And they should have never had Matt Harvey start the season. And they're doing it with Zach Wheeler, too. Why is Zach Wheeler throwing now? I know he had a couple of years from the Tommy John. The only thing that's going to happen is what Washington experienced with Strasburg. If the Mets are in contention, they're likely to shut Wheeler down. They should, Because Wheeler demanded. I don't know what's going on with the Mets, but I think the players are running it, not the management. Wheeler demanded that he wasn't going into the bullpen and wasn't, getting, and wasn't starting uh, the year in, in Florida. He wanted to pitch. They let him pitch. And if he throws over 100 innings, they're going to shut him down. And if, if the Mets need him, it's going to be hell to pay. They should have just let him work his way into the season. He has struggled a little bit. And then when he was fully ready, let him pitch and pitch through September when they're going to need him. The Mets are just blowing it everywhere. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lenny Melnick. And Lenny, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players that they're pretty high on for the rest of the season and some maybe not so high on for the rest of the season. I'm calling it thumbs up and thumbs down. Uh, let's start with the thumbs up. In the American League, uh, what hitter do you like that gets the thumbs up from Lenny Melnick? Okay, what hitter do I like thumbs up, okay? I do think that No More Mazzaro is going to, uh, is going to turn it around a little bit. I mean, I'm surprised. You know, last year he started off so good. I am not giving up on No More Mazzaro at all. Uh, not at all. I think he will come back and have a good year. I think Nick Castellanos, the problem with Castellanos is the same thing you saw with Justin Upton last year. When Justin Upton was in the number two spot, uh, to me, Justin Upton, when he was moved out of the two spot, he became a different hitter. Same thing with Castellanos. I know yesterday he batted fourth. We've seen him out of the two spot, and he's been hitting. Uh, you know, you, play, you take a look at Kyle Schwarber, batting the leadoff. I think he's got the mentality now of an on-base percentage guy, not of a 35 home run guy. And uh, the manager for Texas alluded to that. What's his name? Jeff Bannister. When he put uh, Ruffnett Odor in the number two spot to shake things up, he implied that Odor um, just needed that shake-up mentally. He said it's a big difference batting in the middle of the order or on top of the order, and Odor is more of on top of the order hitter. So I do believe that it gets into their heads. So I'll tell you what, man, I'm going to be on Castillo. I'm absolutely going to be on uh, on Nomar Mazzaro as probably the two players in the American League. I'm not. I'm not looking at. Uh, I'm not expecting Aaron Judge to keep it up. I really not. Right now he's going through a little mini slump, so let's see what happens there. Uh, in the Arizona Fall League with uh, the great Kimball Crosley, who we see there speak every year, and he's a scout. He comped, and has got a couple of other scouts agreed, because I asked a lot of them. He, count, he comped Aaron Judge to um, uh, Billy Ashley. You remember Billy Ashley? Vaguely. Six seven, two hundred forty pounder played in the early nineteen nineties for a couple of teams. Had seven year career, and it was absolutely mediocre. Uh, and by the way, they also comped Greg Bird to Justin Smoke, and I think they're going to be right on that one. So, in the American League, my two big guys could be Castellanos and um, Mazzaro coming back. 
And by the way, I'm going to also do it for um, a Byron Buxton. I'm going to also do it for Buxton. And also do it for Alex Bregman. Only because I like Larry Schechter. Now he's got a 10-game, who's his, who's his uncle. Yeah, see, Bregman has been consistent, hasn't broken. I don't think he has a home run yet, but he does have a 10-game hitting streak. So I'm going to jump on the Bregman. So there's a couple of guys in the National League. Also, Eric Cosmer. I think he's already started his climb. So he's batting close to 300 now. And only a couple of weeks ago, he was doing absolutely nothing. Okay, are you on uh, National League? National League hitter. Uh, that's a tough one. I'll tell you what. I don't know if anybody noticed this or not, but uh, Polanco in Pittsburgh, he was moved back to right field where he's comfortable. And, you know, you probably know this, that sometimes players get moved to a different position and they just, you know, worry about the defense more than they do about the offense. And I think it's really got to him. So I'm thinking that Polanco turns it around. Uh, it's easy to say Mikel Franco batting about 210. I think he's going to turn it around pretty good. Those would probably be. And I think Schwaber, too. I think Schwaber, if he's put in the three-hole, I know he was there yesterday, but they had a lot of guys not playing. If they move Schwaber out of the three-hole, now's the time to go after Kyle Schwaber because he'll get that mentality back of being the, the slugger rather than being the on-base percentage guy. Going over to the mound, Lenny, in the American League, who's a pitcher you like for thumbs up? I went on a show on Sirius, and I got pummeled. They asked me this question. They asked me to name a pitcher that was going to be uh, a bold prediction, and I said Kevin Gausman is going to win the Cy Young Award. Now, I don't think he'll win the Cy Young Award. That was a bold prediction, but I do think that Kevin Gausman is going to turn around, and I'm very happy to jump on the Gausman bandwagon. No question about it. And in the National League, how about a thumbs-up pitcher? Eikhoff on Philadelphia has pitched brilliantly until his last three starts. I see him bouncing back. I like the Phillies, even though they've lost 10 out of 12. I don't think this team is going to be a doormat. Uh, I don't think they're going to be a doormat. So I think Eikhoff is going to be somebody that you can probably pick up now. He's, I, I think he's at the low end of his game. I'm still not buying the Colorado pitchers, I will tell you that. Absolutely not buying the Colorado pitchers. Uh, the other guy who I would take in the National League, and I do have to think about it a little bit. Um, I, boy, I'd love to say Adam Wainwright, but you know something, Patrick? You can't. You can't anymore. He's lost velocity, but he has lost his control, his command. And when you don't have velocity, you've got to have command. Quickly through some thumbs-downs in the American League, who's a thumbs-down hitter for you? Aaron Judge. I'm going to go out on that limb, and I'm going to say Aaron Judge, and of course I'm going to say Greg Bird, like I said. I just think that Aaron Judge has hit uh, has hit a point uh, where he is slumping. Not dramatically yet, but I think that slump has just begun. Uh, too many holes in his swing. Every player has a hot streak. Aaron Judge has had it. Thumbs down hitter in the National League? Same thing in the National League. You can just tell that Ryan Zimmerman has had the best part of his year. And isn't it interesting with Ryan Zimmerman? As good as he's been, Patrick, does he have any trade value? I don't think the fantasy community is really bought in on him. They're just not believing that he's going to be any good for most of the year. I think it's the end of the Ryan Zimmerman era for 2017. Over to the pitcher's mound in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think deserves the thumbs down? Uh, Corey Kluber. I don't know if he's. I don't know if it's about the injuries or he's just not that good. 
but I think we all thought that Corey Kluber was going to be something special. Uh, so I'm going to go thumbs down on Corey Kluber. How about a National League pitcher thumbs down? I can't believe how bad Jeff Samarja is with an ERA of uh, approaching six, and he just doesn't show me anything. He gives up the three-run home run just like it's uh, it's part of his game. So I'll say Samarja, absolutely. There are people that are buying low on Samarja. I'm telling you to stay away from him. Lenny Milner gives thumbs up to Nomar Mazzara, Nick Castellanos, Byron Buxton, Alex Bregman, and Eric Hosmer. In the National League, Jorge Polanco, Mikhail Franco, and Kyle Schwarber. For pitchers, Kevin Gosman and Jared Eikhoff, thumbs down to Aaron Judge of the Yankees, Ryan Zimmerman of Washington, Corey Kluber of Cleveland, and Jeff Samarja of the San Francisco Giants. Lenny, this has been a gas. Tell us where listeners can read and hear more from Lenny Melnick. Well, I will tell you, Lenny Melnick, fantasysports.com. Every morning at 9 a.m., it's uh, it's a lot of fun to do a podcast in front of a cast of thousands. So join us if you can't come live to the chat room. Some people work, Patrick, you know that. Uh, you can pick it up. It's on demand on the site. And the other thing about the website that we have is every day we do a column called Daily Chatter. And I'll tell you something. Andrea does such a great job of making it uh, just an interesting thing. We take every event that happens the day before and we talk about it. I give opinions. We give. We had, it's uh, it's backed up with videos, backed up with charts and graphs. It's it's the most exciting thing that I've done. And we also have a section very important. I read the newspapers, the out of town newspapers, every morning, and I sort out the greatest articles that mean something about players, something that's not on Roto World, Roto Wire, any of the Rotos, but just in the out of town newspapers. Check it out. You're going to find stuff very interesting by reading the beat writers from the out-of-town papers. And don't forget, with 800 people on my site, 600 of them have my home phone number. All you got to do is register, and it's all free. And I, and you know what? I talked about this. We talked about the people. I got a ton of people who call me every day, all very respectful. They just let me know ahead of time, are you free today? Call me. I'll call you. And we talk baseball, and I love it. People think I'm crazy. But I have never once had a problem with anybody calling. Well, I tried it once, and they kept calling and asking if my refrigerator was running, so I got tired of that. Yeah, well, you got to chase it then if it's running. you got to right, go yeah. after it, or you got to let it run away. Lenny, thanks a million for helping us out this week. It's been a f- great fun as always, and I sure hope to see you in Arizona this fall. Uh, you kidding. I couldn't come this year, but I love it there, and I love the people at Baseball HQ. I really do, and that goes for you too, Patrick. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Lenny Melnick writes regularly for LennyMelnickFantasySports.com. Make sure you check out that live podcast with the chat room. As well, Lenny can be heard all the time on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. When we come back, our regular HQ Radio commentaries. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time tomorrow, Brian Slack's coverage of the National League West looks at troubles in the San Diego outfield, the Giants' leadoff slot, and a tremendous bullpen in Colorado. In Facts and Flukes, the spotlight on Avisail Garcia, Stephen Nickrand looking for the highlights and the shadows on the White Sox outfielder, 
And in the GM's office, the BaseballHQ.com staff survey for April, looking at some hot and cold starts and a whole bunch more. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Frequent Flyers, our Pitcher Matchups Report and Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Philadelphia first base prospect Rise Hoskins is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Philadelphia Phillies' Rise Hoskins doesn't get much attention, but could provide fantasy owners with some much-needed offensive production once he reaches the majors. The 24-year-old Hoskins had a breakout season in 2016, hitting 281 with a 377 on on-base percentage and a 566 slugging percentage with 26 doubles and a career-high 38 home runs, more than doubling his home run output of 2015. Hoskins, who was a fifth-round pick out of Sacramento State in 2014, has plus raw power and has shown an improved understanding of the strike zone. He can be beat by quality breaking balls and has some swing and miss to his game and struck out 125 times in 498 at-bats last year, but he also walked a career-high 71 times and can put a charge into the ball when he does make contact. Hoskins is a below-average defender and doesn't have much speed, but he's off to a quick start at AAA Lehigh Valley, hitting 337 with a 431 on base percentage and a 651 slugging percentage with 6 doubles and 7 home runs and 86 at-bats. With Tommy Joseph hitting just 187, it's possible that the Phillies will call Hoskins to the majors to see what he can do. Because of his plus-raw power and recent track record, Hoskins is definitely worth a roll of the dice in NL-only formats and is a player to watch even in mixed leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect call-up coverage included Cubs infielder Heimer Candelario and Colorado right-hander Jeff Hoffman, among many others. And if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, you know BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Texas first baseman Ronald Guzman and Pittsburgh's starting pitcher Tyler Epler. And here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As you may have already heard, Colorado Rockies rookie starting pitcher Jeff Hoffman struck out eight batters in a spot start win against the Los Angeles Dodgers on May 11th. You may recall that Jeff Hoffman was one of our frequent flyers two months ago, March 14th to be exact, and our own Rob Carroll in the May 10th edition of Playtime Today called Jeff Hoffman one to keep an eye on. 
Well, we're set to deliver two more players to keep your eyes on this week, beginning with 22-year-old Texas Rangers first baseman Ronald Guzman, who may soon be given an opportunity at Arlington with 35-year-old Mike Napoli batting only 172 through May 11th. On the other hand, Raul Guzman is off to a blistering start at AAA Round Rock. He is currently batting 344 with three home runs through 32 games. Then again, Baseball HQ's 2017 Minor League Baseball Analyst warns that Ronald Guzman got off to a hot start in 2016 but faded late, and that could happen again in 2017. That's why Ronald Guzman, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Still, the Rangers could quickly fall out of contention with injuries to Cole Hamels, Adrian Beltre, and others. Plus, with Mike Napoli on a one-year contract, maybe the Rangers need to embrace the youth movement. Speaking of another youth with movement, at least as breaking ball, is 24-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates starting pitcher Tyler Epler. The upwardly mobile Epler has impressed his first season at AAA Indianapolis with a 3-1 record coupled with a 2.36 ERA and a .87 whip. With Jameson Tylon recently undergoing surgery for testicular cancer, perhaps there will eventually be another rotation spot that opens if Trevor Williams falters. Remember, Trevor Williams currently has a 7.98 ERA through seven games, including one start. While Tyler Epler is not known for having a dominant fastball, he does possess elite command. In fact, Tyler Epler's career command ratio of 3.5 strikeouts to walks in the minors exceeds BaseballHQ.com's benchmark for baseball's best pitchers. Plus, Tyler Epler has been lights out in three of his six starts in 2017, including throwing seven scoreless innings his most recent start last Wednesday, May 10th, against the Charlotte Knights. Now the only thing that Tyler Epler appears to be lacking is big league experience. But, as former Pittsburgh Pirates all-star pitcher Vern Law once said, experience is a hard teacher because she gives the test first and the lesson afterwards. The bottom line is that experience has taught us not to learn this lesson the hard way. In other words, go ahead and pick up both Ronald Guzman and Tyler Epler, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, we call that the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at weekend matchups, including left-handers Chris Sale and Matt Moore, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Yogi Berra once said, Love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball is pretty good too. For a chance at the best of both worlds, we have a strong celebrate recommendation for all mothers out there on Mother's Day this Sunday. As for us, we're in the labor room awaiting the birth of our 2017-based matchup ratings. So let's compare the matchup ratings we have, which are still based on 2016 data, with some early 2017 trends to see if those ratings are underlined or undermined. Two of the top four matchup ratings this weekend belong to our featured pitchers, and both of their games are on Saturday, one in the American League and one in the National League. Our marquee matchup is at Fenway Park in Boston. Marquee matchup man Chris Sale has a matchup rating of 060. 
against the visiting Tampa Bay Rays, it should be well higher. In an uneven battle of left-handers, Tampa Bay starter Blake Snell has a matchup rating of minus 161. That's not the largest matchup differential of the weekend, but it's up there at 221. Thus far in 2017, Rays batters have struck out more than any other team. Sale leads Major League Baseball in strikeouts. At home, the Red Sox are 11-7. On the road, Tampa Bay has that old dime store record of 5-10. Against lefties, the Rays are 4-7. In Sale's seven starts this season, he has four PQS 4s and three PQS 5s, including one against the Rays, also in Boston. Sale has averaged seven and a half innings pitched in his four Fenway outings, allowing a total of only four earned runs in 30 innings pitched. In 52 innings pitched overall, Chris Sale's expected ERA is a career-best 242. His whip is a career-best 079, and his base performance value, or BPV, is a career-best 195. And that's higher than opponents on base average against Sale, which is 169. Sale is combining a career-best first pitch strike rate of 69% with a career-best swinging strike rate of 17%. In his 52 innings pitched, Sale has 73 strikeouts and 11 walks. That gives him a career-best dominance rate of 12.7 strikeouts per nine and a career-best command ratio of 6.6 strikeouts per walk. In short, Chris Sale is having a career year. He's much more of a strong start than a wild card this weekend. Chris Sale is our marquee matchup man. Our Saturday surprise is another left-hander at home, this one with a matchup rating even higher than Sale's at 072. But he's our Saturday surprise because his matchup rating is definitely undermined by his 2017 performance. He's the struggling San Francisco Giants' Matt Moore. Moore faces a surprising Cincinnati Reds team that has won 8 of its past 10 and 11 of 13 against teams under 500. The Giants have the majors' worst record and even have a losing record at home. Only the Kansas City Royals have scored fewer runs and have a lower OPS than San Fran. And no one has fewer home runs. Cincinnati will start right-handed waiver acquisition Luis Alberto Bonilla. He has a matchup rating of minus 256. Bonilla's major league experience consists of 20 and two-thirds innings pitched for Texas in 2014. He had Tommy John surgery in 2015, and he's bounced between starting and relieving, not to mention organizations. Before you allow Moore's mound opponent to get your hopes up that Moore may be worth a go, consider this. Versus right-handers in 2017, the Giants are 4-14 and for a winning percentage of 222. The 2017 version of Matt Moore is costing his fantasy owners minus $12 in roto value and minus $7 in 5x5. Over seven starts so far, Moore has one PQS dominant effort, two PQS decents, and four PQS disasters. That's a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 14% dominant to 57% disaster. In an example of why we're waiting for more 2017 data to accumulate, Moore's three home starts have been better than his four road starts. During drubbings at LA, Colorado, and Arizona, Moore allowed 18 earned runs in 12 and two-thirds innings. At home, Moore has held opponents to seven earned runs in 20 and two-thirds innings. And overall, Moore has an unfortunate strand rate of just 60%. So he may not be a strong Sid. But his expected ERA is a career-worst 479, and his whip is a career-worst 155. Moore's first pitch strike rate is under 60%, his swinging strike rate is under 10%, his control rate is 3.5 walks per nine, and his command ratio is 2.2 strikeouts per walk. 
Matt Moore is our Saturday surprise because his 2017 skills do not support even a risk-reward wildcard start for the sadly stumbling San Francisco Giants. Elsewhere, it looks like another good weekend to load your lineups against the 21 strong sit recommendations. Nine are rookies, seven are making spot starts, four are at Coors Field in the mile-high air of Denver, and two are recently off the DL. So on Saturday in the American League, pile it on against Chicago's Dylan Covey, Cleveland's Mike Clevenger, Minnesota's Nick Tepish, New York's Luis Severino, Oakland's Sonny Gray, Seattle's Dylan Overton, and Texas's Nick Martinez. In the National League on Saturday, maximize your plate appearances versus Colorado's Jordan Lyles, LA's Alex Wood, Pittsburgh's Trevor Williams, and San Diego's Trevor Cahill. In the American League on Sunday, take your swings against the Astros' Charlie Morton, the Royals' Chris Young, the A's' Sean Manaya, the M's' Ariel Miranda, and the Rays' Matt Andres. On Sunday in the National League, take advantage of the Rockies' Antonio Senzatella, the Dodgers' Julio Urias, and the Padres' Jared Weaver. Here's wishing you a happy Mother's Day weekend filled with love and baseball. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about Noah Syndergaard, Part 2. Last week in Master Notes, I argued that Noah Syndergaard was in the right to refuse the MRI the Mets had asked him to take after a seeming arm injury. This week, we move on to the hue and cry in the media about whether Syndergaard was out of line in refusing to talk with reporters about his injury. As I said last week, Syndergaard could argue he was not under contractual requirement to take the MRI, but I know some pretty smart people, including Lenny Melnick earlier, and a lot of not-so-smart people who can make the case that he should have taken the test, or that his motives were more petty and child-tantrumish than coolly reasoned. I disagree. But I see the point, and I'm fine with it. That said, however, even if Syndergaard should have taken the MRI, he didn't have any requirement, not legal, not moral, not ethical, to talk with the media about the MRI or anything else related to his health. First of all, there is no contractual agreement in the CBA or in the Universal Player Contract. Under the CBA, accredited baseball media are granted access to the clubhouse and the players during specified periods before and after games for interviews, and sometimes between games of a doubleheader. Nowhere does it specify, though, that the player must subject himself to questions about his health or any other aspects of his private personal life. This leads to a more general argument about whether athletes have some duty to talk to journalists. I don't think so, and I used to be one. A journalist, I mean, not an athlete, like you needed to be reminded of that. When I was a daily newspaper columnist, one of my pals in the sports department got his nose well and truly out of joint on this topic. He was trying to get an interview with Willie Upshaw. You might remember Willie Upshaw if you're of a certain age. He was a decent slugger who got some lower ballot MVP votes in the early 80s playing for the Blue Jays. The Jays had traded Upshaw to Cleveland before the 1988 season. My pal's boss, the assistant sports editor at the paper, told him to track down Upshaw for an interview on what it was like to leave the rising Jays and be sent to the hinterland on Lake Erie. I don't know how he did it, but my pal got the number of the Cleveland locker room phone. He's very resourceful. You would not believe the names in his tattered old Rolodex. It's a skill that might hold him in good stead when they finally shut down the paper where he works. 
Mind you, knowing him, he'll keep turning up in the newsroom even after they close the place. They'll find a cobwebbed mummy with a phone stuck to its ear when they demolish the place to make room for a parking lot or a super Walmart or some other awful thing. Anyway, my pal had the number of the phone inside the locker room, so he waited until he was pretty sure Cleveland would be in the room, and then he dialed up. Someone picked up the phone, and my pal asked for Upshaw by name. Hey, Willie, phone's for you, the guy hollered, and a few seconds later a deep voice came on and said hello. My pal said, is this Willie Upshaw? Yeah. Hi, Willie, my pal said. He introduced himself and then said, I'm a sports reporter for the Leader Post newspaper in Regina, Saskatchewan. Do you have a few minutes for a quick interview? I sure don't, Willie Upshaw said in his slow Texas drawl. Then he hung up. I still laugh when I think about that. I sure don't became a catchphrase between my pal and me, the way, yeah, sure, became a catchphrase in Ball 4. I digress. My pal was pretty mad that Upshaw had declined the interview. I wish he'd asked me if I'd agreed, because then I could have said, I sure don't, which would have been both hilarious and accurate. His point, which we still hear some 28 years later, was that Willie Upshaw and other pro athletes somehow owe it to the media to give interviews because the media act as the middleman to the fans and the fans have the right to hear from their players. Like the Jays' organizational hopes or Willie Upshaw's personal ambitions rested on the support of 800 baseball fans in Regina, Saskatchewan. So the argument goes that a pro athlete like Syndergaard benefits from media coverage of him, the team, and the game, so he has an obligation in turn to participate when those same media want to interview him. I think the argument is more valid when we're talking about policymakers whose decisions actually affect people's lives. If a political leader or business executive announces a policy that costs jobs or creates them or affects our environment or otherwise matters in a real sense, then those people should be held to account subject to public scrutiny through the media. But whether Noah Syndergaard has a sore back or bum shoulder or just needs the old whoopsie doesn't really matter enough to justify mandatory media intrusion into his life. It's important to the schmoes who drafted him in the second round, but if he doesn't want to talk about it, it's really none of our business. And let's be honest, most sports interviews are pretty useless anyway as sources of bettable information. It seems about 80% of sports reporters' questions are hardballs like, how do you feel? And, say, your teammate is playing really well, isn't he? This is not a surprise. The purpose of most media sports reporting is not to provide information. It's to provide unpaid advertising for the games, the teams, and often for the media themselves, who get big profits from airing the games. As well, there's something of a quid pro quo between the reporters and the athletes. The reporters ask only soft questions, and in exchange, the players keep letting them ask questions. It's kind of like what goes on in big-time political coverage. What we don't hear is actual critical analysis of the team itself, and especially not of its owners or its front offices, except when they're heaping pays upon Theo Epstein, nor about the business of baseball. We've all heard a lot of commentary about the Mets players, a little bit about their embattled manager, and lately about Noah Syndergaard's bad attitude. You know what we haven't heard, especially on game broadcasts? We haven't heard any pointed comment about the Mets' owner's disastrous interactions with Henry Madoff and how the resulting cash crunch affected the team's ability to maximize its competitiveness. You know what else we don't hear? We don't hear about the stadiums. We don't hear why taxpayers have to pay to foot the bill for a ballpark 
for billionaire owners and millionaire players. Look, I know Noah Syndergaard is probably just a big lunkhead, maybe a little too full of himself. He's also in the center of the media universe and he's 24 years old, which is peak lunkhead according to Sabermetrics. Who among us wasn't a big self-interested lunkhead at age 24? But let's keep this in mind. Even if he's just a big lunkhead and a pro athlete, he's a lunkhead pro athlete who still has rights, including the right to look after his own health and to be left alone while he's doing it. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternodes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternodes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternodes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, the legend, Lenny Melnick, from LennyMelnickFantasySports.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. Lenny's called the legend with good reason in fantasy baseball circles. He deserves that handle, and he's as tuned into baseball and fantasy baseball as much as anyone you'll ever meet. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.